One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on the day that the papers are overflowing once more with more pictures of the happy royal couple who showed off baby Archie. Can we just stop now, please? Enough already, even though they named uh, the little boy after me. Back in the real world, we've got more important things to discuss and we're kicking off with a disturbing report about how big companies are actually killing capitalism. Lord Tyree, the head of the Competition and Markets Authority, has warned that consumers have been ripped off for so long they are now actually losing faith in the systems altogether. The main culprits, he says, are banks, insurance firms, energy companies and huge online retailers who charge whatever they think they can get away with for goods and services. Has he got a point? Well, I'm not sure he has, actually. I think he's actually reflecting what an awful lot of people think who don't know what they're talking about. And in fact, it might be truer to say that more and more people have lost faith in democracy and in the House of Lords and in the House of Commons in this country. 03444991000. Coming up, we'll be finding out why 70% of cyclists in this country fear for their safety while they're out and about on the roads. There's no doubt the hostility between cyclists and other drivers has reached an all-time high. But who's really to blame for that? I think it's the people handing the roads to the two-wheeling brigade and creating division, i.e. the politicians, people like Sadiq Khan and others all up and down the country. 0344-499-1000. Also, we'll be asking just how dangerous is the world getting as Donald Trump threatens Iran. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo calls Jeremy Corbyn disgusting for supporting Maduro in Venezuela. And the Chinese are vowing to retaliate against trade war tariffs from America. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, Lord Tyree's an interesting guy. He sits in the House of Lords. He's a former Tory minister, uh, served under Michael Howard. Uh, he was a guy who worked for the Tory party. I think he was elected for the first time in 1997. Uh, he's not quite a snouts-in-the-trough type. He's been there for years and years and years and years. But uh, he is a man who is supposed to be in charge of something which you would think is fairly capitalistic in its makeup, the Competition and Markets Authority. I think there's no question that people are fed up being ripped off by banks, being f- ripped off by energy companies, being ripped off by insurance companies. But does does that really mean that people have got some kind of crisis of confidence in capitalism itself? We know that there's an awful lot of young people who think Jeremy Corbyn is the next best thing since sliced bread and that he should be running the country. I don't think anybody sensible actually thinks that, though, do they? 0344 499 1000. We'll take loads of your calls coming up. But let's talk to Robert Colville, editor of CapEx, first of all. Robert, very good morning to you. Morning. Well, welcome to the Independent Republic. Um, this is a place which uh, celebrates capitalism rather more probably than most, because I'm one of those who, if it had been up to me, would not have saved the banks from going bankrupt. I would have just let them go bankrupt because that's what capitalism tells you should happen. Yeah, um, and I, th- I think um, I mean I, I think I think all of this, um, to be honest, comes back comes back to the financial crisis. It comes it comes back to two thousand and eight. Um, yeah. And you, you the, the the young people you're talking about, you know that that they're, they're, they're sort of opening their opening experience of capitalism and um, and the economy was the entire thing falling off the cliff. Yes, and then having sort of ten really quite grueling years uh, years afterwards. So it's no longer that it's no longer I mean, you know, actually, you know, people haven't people have not lost faith in capitalism. People have not lost faith in competition. But you know their trust in as you say, politicians, big business, you know, the, you know, the guys at the top of the system, you know, they're, they're not that happy with them. 
Have they lost faith, perhaps, in what they're being told is capitalism? Because people like Jeremy Corbyn are quite good at telling everyone that capitalism has got us into this terribly unfair situation where the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the gap between the two becomes larger. The fact that people are avoiding paying tax, even though lots of people actually do pay tax. The fact that, you know, somehow it's you're now an evil individual uh, if you want to go out and make a lot of money. Yeah, I mean... The, 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 the diagnosis is right. The the, 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 the cure is absolutely wrong. Um, and this is actually where where, where Tories need to go. I mean, the, the essential point is capitalism works when there's competition. You know, the reason that you can get, you know, like if you when you walk out of, of your office for lunch today, that you'll have like eight, nine, ten different choices, and literally five of them will be present on But you know, you will, you can you can you you can buy some, you know really good food really cheaply. That's yeah. the market where competi- where competition works. Yeah. But then you go to something as you say, you know, like the um, uh, you know, energy companies, um, uh, maybe banking. Um, the one he's actually focused on is, is accountancy um, and, and audit. You know, there are, there are these markets where increasingly, because of regulation, because of the way, and just because of the way the economy is moving, you know, you're, you're getting at this kind of concentration of very, very, very large companies. And all the evidence is absolutely clear. You know, the fewer companies you have in a market, the you know, the um, the, the more they have a market for themselves, the more they, the more profits they make, the more um, the you know, the lazier they get. Um, but you know, so so one of the one of the great big challenges for us is to work out how we how we try and fix that. Mm. Is it a, an issue of regulation, do you think, then, Robert? Because, I mean, of course, in true sort of pure capitalism, there is no regulation and the market kind of regulates itself. And if you go to the wall, you go to the wall. If you're able to charge loads and loads of money for something and people will still pay it, then that's happening. However, um, we don't really quite operate like that. We operate a system of kind of diluted capitalism where we have regulators who tell the banks what they can and can't do. Um, are they not doing their job properly, do you think? I think... They, you know, obviously, you need, you need regulation. I mean, you need to, you know, you don't, you know, clean air, you know, all sorts. There are all sorts of areas where, you know, you, you know, clean water. You know, where you, where you need to, to, to set, set standards. The problem we have at the moment is that quite often the regulation is set. You know, the, the people who regulate our economy generally, they're, they're not, you know, they they what, what often happens, um, like you know, with internet regulation, banking regulation, whatever, is there are unintended consequences. It makes it. You, because they, you, once you impose a certain level of regulation, it becomes much, much harder for a new company to to enter the market. You know, um, there are, there are some markets where there's like a natural monopoly. Like, you know, I, if, if I were to set, try and set up a new search engine, I'd be an idiot because you know, Google, because Google is you know, you know, why, why, you know everyone just uses Google. There's, mm. there's network effects there. But you know, if I wanted to try and set up a new bank, it's it's, it's much harder. Than I, should, I should be if I wanted to set up a new set up a new accountancy um, company. And um, you mentioned. Um, and the housing crisis is actually a really good example of this. Yeah. What happened was after 2008, we the bank said, "Oh my God, we gave mortgages to lots and lots of people who shouldn't have had mortgages. So now we're not going to now we're going to impose really really tight restrictions." Yeah, and basically now we're not going to give any to anybody. Yeah, yeah, and what you've left with is about you know two million people we've we worked out who would have had. More, who you know who've had who have got jobs who've got an impeccable record you know they've always paid in you know they they you know they they can afford mortgages but they can't afford deposits mm. and that's partly partly because of house prices rocketing up which is again about our planning regulations but also because you know they they can't um, you know the banks are told you know you can only lend to people who have a you know, who who take mortgages X Y and Z rather than A B and C yes I mean some of what Lord Tyree says does ring a bell and will be resonant with an awful lot of people which is that you know the more loyal you are as a customer nowadays the less well off you become with that particular company like you know if you're uh, a new subscriber to sky tv you'll probably get a better deal than if you're currently with them similarly uh, you know you'll get a better deal from an energy company to sign up with them than you will if you've been with them for 10 years i mean why can they not the regulator do things about that i, I mean they can um and um you know um, often you this is like you, in energy companies, you can say, hey, the solution to this is to nationalize all the energy companies, which would cost a lot of money and not really work very well. Or you can say, we're going to, you know, we're going to push switching, we're going to let people move. The, the problem is, and actually, where, where, you know, where the, you know, where there is a need for regulation is that what's happened in the energy market in particular is, that, you know, the people who are, who don't move, who have just sat on the same tariff, quite often they're elderly people, quite, you know, or they've, you know, they're, they're, they're not, you know, they're not checking the internet, they're not sort of, they're not engaged with their with their decisions. They're just sort of sitting there and letting it happen to them. So you've, I think it's, I, from memory, this is uh, it's about like a third of customers who who just sort of sit there and they sat there on the highest tariff, and then the government can actually, 
you know, actually, actually, that that's that's wrong. And you should, you know, you should you should either try and make people aware that there are other options out there, or you or, you, or just you know push them in to, to switch. You know, mm. say, look, you can't you can't you can't if you've just been sitting there with the same company. We need to kind of go, you know, have a big flashing alarm bell going. You do realise you are losing quite a lot of money here. Yes. Yeah, but then again, that puts it into the arms of the of the consumer to sort their life out, I suppose. And a lot of people either one don't have the time or the inclination or even maybe the wherewithal to do that. And so, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm in two minds about this one, to be honest, because on the one hand, you know, if you, you know, it's like caveat emptor. If you can't actually go out and sort yourself out and get yourself a better deal, then that's your problem. However, I just feel as though it's a bit like with train companies. You know, I feel like I'm being ripped off every time I buy a railway ticket because I don't believe that they're offering me the same price as somebody else. And and they're in the wrong for doing that, it seems to me. Yeah, but I mean, but again, again, that's an area where actually, you know, the government is telling train companies how much to raise their prices by. It's telling them where they can, you know, it's, it's telling them what, how, how they, what mm. they can do. It's, it's saying, I mean, obviously, you know, a, a railway line is, it, you know, it's hard to have competition on it, but it's, especially on the long, long distance route, it's, it's not impossible. No, quite. And do you think that Lord uh, Tyree has a point, though, that the more this goes on, perhaps the more people will kind of walk away from what they believe to be capitalism and will become will become a more left-wing society as a result and people will then elect politicians who they think will battle capitalism yeah i mean we, we did some uh, we did, we did, we've done some some polling and it's really uh, so I, as well as uh, running capex i also run a think tank called the center for policy studies and okay. we did some polling on what on what young people think and it's really clear they're not just you know they're not you know, they're completely rational consumers. You know, they they believe in, that you know everyone should have the same opportunity, but we shouldn't enforce the same outcomes. They believe in competition. They believe in choice. They also believe, you know, they're not going to have enough savings when they hit retirement. That their lives are going to be worse than their parents. That you know, when you're often when you're going to be able to afford a home, the most popular answer is never. Mm. You know, if, that, if that's what you think, right. and, and obviously, and obviously they've had you know they've had a long period after the financial crisis in which you know in which real wages have. Have been kind of stagnant or falling, which you know isn't going to make anyone feel good about anything. No, of course. So, you know, so, so, so the job of politicians, and I mean, that's, this is actually why what Tyler is saying is quite welcome, and what you know, quite a lot of the other politicians out there are saying. You know, just stop saying, okay, let's just accept that we're not going to have much growth, and that we're just you know we're just kind of stuck with this. And actually, let's do some, you know, do whatever the hell we can to put more money in people's pockets to make sure that companies are fighting for their loyal for their loyalty that they deserve their loyalty. You know, I think um, I mean. Capitalism is the most utterly wonderful system when it has competition in it, when it has choice, when you, the consumer, the little guy, are in control. And also when you get to keep more of the money that you make and thereby spend, and spend it in a way that you would like to spend it rather than giving it all to the government uh, who would like to spend it the way they want to spend it. Completely. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we need to fund public services. We need to fund the NHS. We need to pay for social care. And we need to put police on the streets. But when you actually talk to people, you know, are you paying enough in tax? Would you like to pay some more? Everyone goes, no, I'm paying, you know, of course I don't want to pay any more tax. I, you know, I, we need to be really, really mm. smart about what we, what we spend. We, and we need to find, figure out how we can to put more money in people's pockets because then they go out and spend it. Well, also, we're getting into a place now, I feel, where the parliament and, and the parliamentarians that, that serve us, supposedly, have rather forgotten what it is that they're supposed to be doing. They think we work for them as opposed to them working for us. I mean, we're now being told, for example, today, and we're going to talk about this later on, that, that the cladding uh, project, which is going to cost 200 million quid, is going to be paid for by the taxpayer. They're going to find, find the money some other way rather than actually finding it from, from government coffers. We're also being told that, you know, the end of the world is nigh and it's all our fault. So we have to pay more taxes and we have to, you know, somehow do more things to prevent areas from flooding, to prevent the climate crisis, you know, and it's all coming out of our money that we make. It's not coming out of anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, ultimately, government doesn't have money. There's no, you know, government has the money. It takes, it takes from us. Mm. And I mean, you know, this is, you know, there's a reason that politicians keep on saying, look, you know, you need a, you know, you need a strong economy to pay for the public services. You can't just say, you know, we need all of this money for all of these things. Um, you know, and and the rich will pay, or the corporations will pay. Because you know, when you actually crunch numbers, you know, no matter how many rich people there are, no matter how many corporations, they're not rich enough to pay for all of the stuff that all of us want. No, they really aren't. I mean, do you think this is going to get worse before it gets any better? Because we do seem to be in a very kind of uncertain place at the moment politically. We don't seem to really have... We've, we've got the two-party system, which is being kind of ripped asunder by Brexit, so that people are dividing themselves up on different lines. It's now, you know, another evil if you're a Brexit supporter. You know, if you're a middle-class person who wants to stay in the European Union, you're very virtuous. It's all gone a bit weird, hasn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the, I mean, in the Conservative Party, for example, but, you know, if you take Brexit out of the equation, actually everyone, you know, is agrees, pretty much agrees with each other. But if you take Brexit out of the equation, it's a really, really big and, mm. and borderline impossible thing, thing to say. I think, you know, the truth is, it's not just about Brexit. I, I, I worked at the Daily Telegraph when we did the expenses scan. Yeah. People have been very, people have been sort of annoyed with how things are working. People have felt that they're not working for for, for a very long time. And you know, that's kind of a natural human condition. We don't sit there and go, oh, actually, you know, the railway companies, the energy companies are more productive and efficient than they were under public ownership. But actually, you know, we can buy a sandwich now for, you know, £3.75, which is, you know, would have had a value back then of £15 because it has these rare ingredients. Which, yeah. you know, it, we don't, that, that's good. We are, we are massively impatient. We want our lives to get better. And it's the job of the economy and it's the job of politicians to do that. And off, the best way politicians can do that quite often, I think, is you know getting out of the way and just absolutely saying, you want to set up a company, go ahead. You want to, you know, you want to, Live your life. Go ahead. Um, you want to, you know, we're going to make sure you have as much of your own money. We're going to make life as easy as possible for you, and we're going to, but we're also going to make sure that that you're not ripped off in the process. I think that's quite a good, you know, quite a good manifesto. Yeah, I think it is, and I think in that case, Robert, as well, uh, the companies have to play their part too. Thanks very much indeed, Robert Colville, editor of CapEx. There, pretty much agreeing with me that it's not capitalism that's failing. Uh, it is what is being described as capitalism, uh, which is ripping people off, and that is not necessarily capitalism at all. But I think. It's true to say that the insurance companies, the energy companies, the railway companies, the big banks, they all need to play their part in making sure that people don't feel ripped off. Because if they do and they think that somehow big companies and big business is the enemy, then you start to lean to the left then you start to lean towards Jeremy Corbyn. And then you start to worry about what it is that the society is going to become, where people are going to be punished for being successful. People are going to be looked upon uh, as evil for trying to make money uh, and to try to do well for themselves and their families. And that is not the kind of country that I want to live to be honest across the uk online and on dab the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio i got my mind set on you i got my mind set on you i got my mind set on you got my mind set on you but it's gonna take money Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio 03444991000. We've just been talking about how the government uh, and the capitalist system in this country uh, is failing in some ways uh, because of the way uh, that people are perceiving it effectively in the way that some people are seeing money being wasted in some areas. Other people are seeing themselves being ripped off by banks, by building societies, by insurance companies, by big energy firms as well. Uh, we've got the news this morning. One of the big news stories that we're breaking here on Talk Radio is the government has set up a £200 million fund to replace unsafe Grenfell Tower-style cladding on around about 170 private high-rise residential buildings. Now, this was supposed to have been paid for by the owners of those buildings who seemingly have been dragging their feet and not really doing anything about it. So the government has now stepped in uh, and said this money will be made available to building owners to remove the aluminium composite material cladding, uh, basically saying if these reckless building owners won't act, the government will. Well, should we be paying for it, I suppose, is the big question. Alex Dibble has been following the story for us here at Talk Radio. Alex, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Um, This is going to be a very controversial thing, I suppose. Obviously, everybody wants to see it done. But as to who pays for it seems to be the issue. And that's been one of the reasons why it's taken this long for anything to happen. Uh, The government stepped in today with this, as you said, £200 million. But to be frank, the residents of these blocks have been calling for help for 18 months, two years, ever since Grenfell. Because every night they've gone to sleep in a block that could go up in flames and and they could, you know, have the same fate as, as... those it's who quite tragically shocking, lost their really, lives. That, that that still is the case all these months later. It, it is, and, and one of the reasons why it's taken this long is because of this legal uncertainty about who was liable, um, were the developers, were the freeholders, were the government. Um, certainly the, the residents said, you know, we shouldn't be paying and we can't afford to because, you know, we simply, we saved up all our money to buy the, these flats and we don't have any extra money, so they couldn't do it. Uh, the government have, have said £200 million, but many people are saying today that that's not enough. Enough because it only covers aluminium-based cladding and not other types of cladding. And there are hundreds of blocks across sure. the country, Manchester, Sheffield, Liverpool, Kent, you name it, well, funnily with enough, other after, types of cladding. After Grenfell happened, I remember driving around London and suddenly just noticing how many buildings had that kind of cladding on, which I'd never really noticed before, and I suspect, suspect a lot of people would have been the same. Expect a massive legal battle after this, because mm. even though the government are stumping up the money now, 
make no mistake, they don't believe they should be paying because they've already said the developers should and yeah. the leaseholders shouldn't. Right. And they don't believe that they should be paying. So expect a huge legal battle for them to try and recoup that Lord, money from the back, private yeah. companies who they believe should be footing the bill. Right, who will no doubt be paying millions to lawyers to make sure they don't have to. Let's talk to, uh, stay with us if you will, Alex. Let's talk to Ritu Saha, uh, who lives in a building with cladding. Uh, we're going to find out from her what her experience has been. Ritu, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for, for joining us. You live in somewhere called the North Point Building, I understand, in, in Bromley, sort of southeast London. Uh, what, what, what's, what's been your situation? So um, our situation is that our uh, building has got both ACM and non-ACM cladding, right. all of which has been uh, categorized as having the highest level of risk, uh, category three. So we've been told that we need to get all three kinds of cladding off our building before it can be certified as safe. And at the moment, we have 24-hour patrols uh, called waiting watches, um, which has cost us more than £220,000 last year to residents of the building, and we residents undertake waking watches ourselves overnight and after work in order to keep these costs down. And, and are you mostly rent, renters in that building? How many, how many units would you say are in there, if you, if you know? So there are 57 flats, yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, it is the leaseholders who are paying for all of these interim measures and have been told to pay for the recladding. So, uh, and we are a mix of, you know, people who've retired and purchased their final home, um, young professionals, families who've uh, bought their first uh, home there, um, and a very small uh, buy-to-let landlords who maybe have one property which they were using as their pension, which has now gone down the drain, unfortunately. Ritu, it's Alex. You and I were at that meeting last night in Westminster with the all-party parliamentary group on this issue, and Kit Malthouse, the housing minister, was meant to be there, was meant to be addressing you as a leaseholder and other people as well. He didn't show up. Do you think now you can see, hang on, he didn't show up because if he'd announced this fund to you, he, there would have been a massive backlash in the room by, pe- by people who are in buildings without ACM cladding with a different type who would have just looked at him straight in the eye and said, that's not good enough. That's absolutely right, Alex. And uh, as you were in the room, you would know that we did a show of hands to show how many people, leaseholders um, were facing problems other than ACM cladding, um, such as non-ACM and such as internal fire safety defect. And it was, you know, more than 50 percent. In fact, uh, more than two thirds of the people um, in the room um, were facing those kinds of problems. So um, uh, it, it's very clear that the reason that Mr. Malthouse may have avoided that meeting was because there would have been a backlash because um, you know, after months of fighting and talking about this issue, it appears that the crux of the issue has not really been grasped by um, Mr. Malthouse and the MHCLG um, as to the extent of the problem that needs to be fixed and why this fund, while welcome, will actually not go far enough uh, to making our homes uh, safe and actually puts many of us in more difficulty um, than we are currently in. And, and not because, obviously, finance is the main thing here, because safety clearly is, uh, I'd have to say, Rita. Absolutely. What, what, is, Absolutely. The, what is the effect yes. of, of, of all of this on the, on the value of the property that you're in? So uh, at the moment, our properties do not have any value. Uh, none of the flats in our block have sold since we discovered that the uh, cladding was uh, um, unsafe mm. uh, in November of 2017. Um, we have not been able to get any mortgages on our properties. And the uh, handful of um, uh, landlords who are trying to uh, find new tenants, if their old tenants have moved out, have been now told as well um, by many estate agents that we are not going to uh, be um, finding tenants for uh, flats in this particular block as it is unsafe. So uh, we have a situation where we um, are living in this block which is so unsafe that an estate agent would not ask a general member of the public to rent that particular property. And uh, here we are, uh, two two years on from the tragedy at uh, Grenfell, um, still having to uh, say that uh, we need uh, government funds to fix this problem. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, when we are talking about funds, um, it is not about taxpayer 
your funds. It is about asking the question as to how was this material put on our buildings? Who approved it? How was it deemed as safe to be put on so many buildings and is now being deemed unsafe? And if you look at it, that boils down to the failure of government regulations. Uh, and if it boils down to the failure of government regulations, then surely it is a responsibility of government to fix it. So, um, you know, that's why we've been calling for a fund uh, to fix not just ACM but non-ACM cladding as well, as well as all the internal fire safety defects, the myriad internal fire safety defects that have been discovered in many of these buildings post-Grenfell, which are going to cost millions of pounds to fix. Um, and unfortunately, the funds that have been announced today are not going to cover any of that, nor are they going to cover any interim fire safety measures. Ritu, Ritu, I, 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 I want to get your thoughts on this, and, and Mike, you'll be interested in this as well, because uh, we, we've talked a lot about how non-ACM cladding is it hasn't been covered by this. Um, tests, I believe, have started on other types of cladding, government tests, to, d- to decipher how flammable those other materials are. Zinc, for example, there have been big, big question marks over zinc. Now, I understand that those test results should come back in the summer, and the government have indicated to me this morning that based on the outcome of those tests, if they suggest that there's an immediate public safety concern, that they will consult their experts urgently and consider appropriate action. So, Ritu, does does that give you hope, perhaps, that that non-ACM cladding may well end up being covered by another fund, perhaps, if the results um, show that, that they're equally flammable? Uh, that does uh, give me a lot of hope. Uh, however, uh, you know, we have been uh, discussing this for 22 months and the government has had ample time to carry out the testing on these other kinds of cladding. Um, and my question uh, to the government would be, will we need to wait another 22 months uh, for um, the outcome of these tests and for the government to move its feet? Because at the moment, the leaseholders at North Point are still stuck in limbo. We're still left with these different kinds of cladding and we still have the wait watch on our property and um, you know we, we don't know when our building will be made safe and it's quite possible that our building owner may try to tap into this 200 million pound fund that exists and say okay hang on give me uh, a half a million that will be required to remove the ACM panels and for the rest of it I will just build the leaseholders in the block um, which will put us in an incredibly difficult situation because then we will probably have to fork out you know 50 60 thousand pounds per flat um, because our building owner is putting pressure on us. Um, and uh, if we are unable to pay, that will lead to lease for future and the loss of our homes. So there are a lot of uh, different scenarios that may happen as a result of this government announcement for blocks which have uh, mixed types of cladding in them. And I'm not sure whether the um, minister has actually thought this through. I've just had a chat with the minister, in fact, before speaking to you. And I have put these questions through to him. And he has said he will consider them, but he was unfortunately unable to give a response to me um, when I spoke to him earlier today. That'll be James Brokenshaw. Ritu, thank you very much indeed. Ritu Saha, terrible situation for a lot of these people. And uh, an interesting tweet here, uh, um, Alex, uh, um, from uh, uh, somebody who's called um, Deep House, who basically says um, uh, 200 million to reclad 170 buildings sounds woefully optimistic. How do you remove cladding 200 feet up in any case? That's a lot of scaffolding times 170. And what will be a safe replacement? And will the suppliers charge a fair price? Policy making on the hoof as usual. It does look a bit like that, doesn't it? And you've got this other issue which I think is really interesting. Why is cladding on the side of these buildings? Mm. It's insulation. Yeah. Now, it's flammable. That's a problem. But it's insulation. Yeah. That's why it's on there. If you take it off and you don't replace it with anything, suddenly the heating bills of everyone in that yeah. building is going to skyrocket. They won't be able to afford that. So you have to put something in its place. Or, or of Although, course was you... it not the case that some said that some of the cladding was put up for sort of cosmetic purposes as well? Some was, yes. But th- there are lots that, that were put up for genuine yeah. insulation purposes. Right. If nothing is put up there, you just have these incredibly unattractive blocks. Now, that's better than a block that looks nice but isn't safe, of course. But but there are so many other little details about this, little in comparison to the big one, but still major issues in and of themselves that also need to get sorted out. Absolutely right. Alex, thank you very much indeed. Alex Dibble uh, will bring you all the news on the cladding story throughout the day here at Talk Radio as it develops because the government have said that they're going to pledge £200 million, but it's clearly not going to be enough and there are clearly a lot more questions than there are answers at this point. Well, of course there are. This is the Tory government of Theresa May we're talking about. 0344 499 uh, is the number. We'll take loads more of your calls coming up. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Independent Republic of Mike Graham, you know what to do. We've got loads of great tweets coming in, particularly on the cycling front. Chris says, in Holland, the environment is designed for cycling. In the UK, it's the public who aren't designed for cycling. Certainly the roads uh, in large parts of this country are not designed for cycling, I'd have to say. Uh, here's one from Punk Jock, who says, the rules are we should overtake parked cars, bikes and horses, giving a car door width minimum. But as you say, most drive on the pavement anyway. Well, that's not true to say that. I mean, I think the trouble is there's an awful lot of generalisations that get made. But I can guarantee you, as I said earlier uh, to our cycling guests, if you go and stand on a street corner in the centre of London where bikes and cars and taxis and buses and lorries and vans coexist, you will see, I would guarantee you, an incident involving a cyclist at least once every 15 minutes. Sometimes it's the cyclist's fault, sometimes it's not. But there is a problem and we need to figure it out. 0344 499 1000. A lot of you want to talk about the cladding situation as well. Let's talk to Ed, uh, who's in Newport down in Wales. Hi, Ed. Hi, uh, Mike. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Very, I, uh, very love great you, pleasure. Love show. Thank you very much. I um, used to listen to a rival station, but I don't anymore. I listen to you. Top man. Very well um, played. Congratulations <laughs> for being sensible. Can I, just, can, I just, can I just touch on the cycling thing very quickly? Yeah. Um, I mean, for a start off, a lot of cyclists use, oh, well, I already paid my road tax. Um, I've got a car. Yeah. Yeah, for every car you have, you've got to pay road tax. So that's right. not really an argument. I, I don't it? think I mean, it is. And as somebody earlier pointed out, if you've got a motorcycle, you have to get a separate exactly. road tax exactly. for the motorcycle. So why not for the bike? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I agree with you on most things, but I don't agree with you on your argument with um, sort of individuals or companies having to pay for the cladding, the recladding, if you like, of, um, of, of buildings. Okay. Um, purely because, I mean, when you build a new building, you have to obviously build it to building regs at right. that time. It's at that time. It's not retrospective or in the future. It's at that time the building law is. Yes. So, I mean, um, 
basically those those were those were clad at that time it was building law it was the government authorized that building to be built like that therefore the government should be paying it not individual companies well it's not quite I as mean, simple as that though Ed, is it because the company you're right to say that the, the, the government allowed those buildings to be clad in that way but partly the reason that my understanding is you may know better than me but my understanding is the reason why a lot of the cladding was passed as as suitable was because it wasn't properly inspected the con- the, the, the commercial kind of um, materials being used were not properly looked at and there was yeah. no real proper testing for safety that's, so, that's, that was my next argument actually yeah. um, because I mean the BB as, as you might know the BBA the British Board of Agreement are the, are the, are the persons involved in testing of building materials that yeah. are suitable for for I mean for instance the cladding for every part of a building element right that building material would have been tested to certain standards you have fire doors floors everything would have been tested to certain standards right so I mean that they are the people that really should be culpable if you like for for this this thing going wrong i mean every, like, like i say there must have been something going wrong for that product to be in that situation mm. but i mean at the end ultimately building inspectors or, or so forth would have probably looked at that building and said yeah at this time this building's fine as your certificate so it would have been the local authority yes. at, the, at the time and I, and listen i, I, any, I, I, I totally i totally see your argument ed but but my my sympathies are not with the people who are the owners of the buildings my sympathies are with the people living in those buildings and i think if two years later after such a terrible event as grenfell that the owners haven't really even bothered themselves to attempt to do it except to pass it all on to the leaseholders and the people that live there. I mean, what sort of people are they? Do they really want to see uh, another situation like Grenfell uh, existing in a building that they own? No, it's horrendous, yeah. It's Absolutely awful, horrendous. isn't it? But listen, your point is well made, and I, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. Dave is in Hinkley. Hello, Dave. Hello there. You all right? Yeah, um, very well. What do you want to say? Uh, I'm just about this cladding. Yeah. Um, if, the, if the government... Um, um, say this building's not fit for purpose, it's dangerous, yeah. then if, if the developers are not prepared to uh, put it right, then why don't they just compulsory purchase the building, mm. do the work necessary, and then sell them back on the market at the, at the uh, current value, yes. the proper value? Yes. I would... It is at the moment mm. to be you'd be able to pick them up for next to nothing because they wouldn't be able to sell them. Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you were to compulsory purchase a building, what kind of knockdown price do you think you could get it for? Well, they wouldn't be able to sell it to anybody else if it's, if it's unfit for human inhabitation. Sure. Sure. No, I get that. But what I'm saying is, roughly speaking, would would that mean that the government could compulsory purchase the building and then make a good profit which would pay for the cladding being put on in the end or, or being oh, fixed? I- and more. Yeah, yeah, right. And what would you say to what Ed's point was, which was that the builders who built the buildings in the first place, the owners, at the time, they believed that they were adhering to the right regulations? Well, I think he's got a point. Yeah. But, but you know, um, things change. And, you know, if you're a property owner um, and the regulations change and mm. you have to update things, then you have to update them. Yes, you well, know, exactly you know, right. I mean, it's, 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 like some, it's like somebody coming round to your house and saying, you know, years and years ago, you can't burn coal anymore. So you'd have to yeah. take the fireplace out and put something else in. Yeah, you know, it, it happens all the time. Yeah, no, you're right. Listen, it's a, it's a fascinating problem, this, because when I first started reading this story this morning, I thought to myself, well, of course, everybody's going to agree with James Brokenshire. Setting up a fund of 200 million quid uh, is a good idea. It's a very, very fine way of uh, safeguarding the public. It's exactly what should be done. But clearly, uh, there are people who've got different views on it. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. This is, of course, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We will take loads of your calls between now and 1 o'clock. 03444991000 is the number. We'll be talking about Donald Trump coming up a little bit later on in the show as well because there's all sorts of things going on. Uh, if you're a watcher of what happens in the White House, there's problems in Iran, there's problems in China, North Korea's just fired a missile. Nobody knows why. Uh, there's also, of course, the, uh, the visit by Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State uh, from the United States yesterday, who said that uh, Jeremy Corbyn and others who supported Maduro in Venezuela were quite frankly disgusting Uh, but let's talk about cycling because cycling is something that everybody talks about on a daily basis in this country because there's incidents where some people blame the cyclists there's incidents where cyclists blame motorists taxi drivers get problems lorry drivers have problems cyclists are killed it's a terrible situation but we all have to try and find a way uh, of coexisting let's talk to nick chamberlain policy manager at british cycling nick a very good morning to you 
Good morning, how are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much for, for joining us. Um, it's quite a frightening study, this, if you're a cyclist. 70% uh, of people out there on the, on the road cycling basically say that drivers are often hostile towards them uh, and that many of them feel unsafe on their bikes. Yeah, it's, it's a very blunt report that we've got from surveying our 150,000 members who are a pretty representative group of the sorts of people who ride bikes you know, on our roads and yep. on our paths across the country at the moment. And it's a pretty bleak picture. Yeah. People saying that to do it is, is, is unpleasant and scary. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, there's an awful lot of people doing it. So I guess it can't be that unpleasant and scary. Absolutely. I think that's the critical thing. Look, we, we have. We've got hundreds of thousands, millions of people in this country who do do it. Either do it a lot, which is a hardcore, or, or do it a little bit. And mm. actually, you know, the vast majority of families in this country probably will pull out and push bikes and, and go for a pedal, you know, every so often in the summer when the weather's nice. Right. I think the critical thing is in, in, you know, what we're highlighting in this report and what our members are really keen to say is they may represent a hardcore group of people who really love cycling and all its facets from BMX racing to commuting on their bikes into towns and cities but the big job we've got is to convince more normal people at the moment who currently don't feel they've got any choice other than to drive their car everywhere um, to get some of those people out of their cars for some journeys for some short little journeys journeys around town journeys to the shops and if it's really hostile and unpleasant for the hardcore of people who are willing to do it there's absolutely no way we're going to convince more normal people to actually consider it in the first place well first of all let me take my hat off to you for having the uh, the bravery and the uh, and the strength to use the word normal because that's been outlawed for many many years because i don't think we can define normal at all without getting into trouble with some group or other so hats off to you for that but one of the problems for me nick is is that i think the reason why people are sort of so anti-cycling and not everybody is, of course, but there are sort of quite a large number of motorists who are. It's because of that, that kind of statement that you say you want people to get out of their cars. Well, it's not really for you to say, is it? It isn't, it isn't for me to say, and I think that's the really critical thing, and I think you summed it up just in your introduction to this piece. You know, we have, we have done with trying to convince people or cajole people or tell people they ought to. We've got to build a world. We've got to build towns and cities in which people can make those choices for themselves. And our big concern at the moment is that people are not being given real choice. They're not being given options. People are absolutely, you know, tied to their cars, utterly understandably, because that is the only practical way that lots of people have of getting around and living their lives. Mm. We want to give people more options. And it's that choice that people have to make for themselves you are quite right and what about the uh, the point i also made which is that i don't think politicians have played a particularly sort of sensible role here they've been very preachy about the whole thing i mean certainly in london which is in my main sort of point of interest although I'm, i know glasgow reasonably well too uh, the cycle lanes that have been put in have been put in really you know uh, uh, very helpfully for cyclists and i mean i walk past blackfriars road every day where if you're in a car or a bus you are sitting in a line of traffic which isn't moving and the only people get you anywhere are in the cycle lane so i can perfectly well see you know why that has been done and, and why it's a good thing however you know for everybody else it's a terrible thing and you know I, I, I just think the way that the politicians have done it has kind of pitted people against each other if you know what i mean absolutely look you know and and politicians you know crikey they're in the news an awful lot you know on a daily basis but at the moment full on you know it is the role of all of us to try and support politicians, local, national, everyone, to feel that they are empowered to do things that we as a society believe in. You know, that is our absolute job. And I think the other critical thing about our study that is so important to make, you know, not over 90% of our adult members are all car owners. They're car users, yeah. they're car drivers. And actually, we asked a very specific question. How do you, right now, these hardcore of riders, take most short journeys of under three miles and still one third of them drive their cars, yeah. you know, because they are just normal people like the rest of us. And I'm unapologetically use that word again, you know, but actually a large, as many of those people also as ride short journeys, also walk short journeys. So they are also the pedestrians mm. that we see on our streets, you know. So again, it is about having that conversation in a sensible manner and saying, what sort of towns and cities do we want? You know, we, we do have cities clogged by pollution. No one wants that. No one wants to sit in pollution in their car, in their in their HGV, in their taxi, or walking or riding around. No, but We've there's actually more... a strong conversation about Well, it. we should, and we continue to have it, and we have lots of them on this radio show. However, what I would say is that there's more pollution probably now, certainly 
around where I am in Southwark, in South East London, because of the fact that the traffic doesn't move at all. Because we've had two lanes uh, which were formerly going in both directions. We're now down to one lane going in each direction. Um, and it's so confusing with all the different traffic lights and the street furniture that people talk about, the rights of way. You know, there's bikes coming at you from all over the place. I'm amazed there aren't more. I mean, if, if you stood on the street corner uh, where you know, my local tube station is, which I use because I'm a great believer in public transport, just in case you think I drive around in a horrible, big, smelly car. Um, you know, you'll see incidents practically every 15 minutes between pedestrians and cyclists, between drivers and cyclists. You know, there's a, it's a massive problem. Yeah, look, I think the most important thing, and, you know, I'm not a highways engineer. I, I defer to, you know, some fantastic people I talk to who are. The critical thing is that we just have to let this be evidence-led. And, you know, if that evidence says things that one group or another group doesn't like, well, that is just a hard thing that all of us have to accept. Mm. And, you know, it is a reality that at the moment our towns and streets, and let's remember for our members as well, you know, a lot of them recreational riders at the weekend, it is our thousands of miles of rural roads as well that are important in this. It's not just our towns and cities. But the critical thing is let's all have as calm and evidence-led and rational debate as we can around what the best thing is. And as you say, public transport is a fantastically important part of that. London, very lucky, amazing, world-leading public transport. Much of the rest of the Britain really, really struggled. Yeah. And that's all part of it as well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. How about this? I've got a great tweet here from uh, from Paul who says, there's a difference between cycling to get from A to B and cyclists who use public roads as their own personal training track. If I were to play football or cricket in the road, then I'd be worried. But the roads are not there for people to practice their sport. They are a means to an end, i.e. if you're travelling. And if you are working towards fitness and, and or uh, getting some kind of a race ready, go to a velodrome. Well, you know, I hear Paul. I'm not going to agree with him, I'm afraid. You probably expect that. You know, our roads I think he's got a good point. Cars. I think they he's got built. a good point. I mean, I do see, for example, I, I also spend a bit of time in the in the countryside of Sussex, and quite often at the weekends you'll see a peloton, which is not a word I even knew before 2012 when the Olympics came to Britain. But, you know, you see people out there in a peloton, 15 maybe strong cycling in a, in a big group. You can't get around them because of the way that they're cycling. And, you know, that I know they've got to do that somewhere, but they're clearly sort of training for something. Well, look, you know, uh, actually, a vast majority of the people you see clad in lycra at the weekend and riding around are doing it because they enjoy it. It makes them fit and healthy and it makes them feel good about themselves, you know, and that's something we're trying to promote in our society at the moment is health and well-being and physical activity. I think the other thing, again, you know, just to highlight, you know, the vast majority of those people you see riding around, they are car owners, they are car users and car drivers, and they are choosing to use the roads, you know, at a particular point to be fit and healthy. I think poor behaviour is something that exists in all road user groups. We know that. Yeah. And poor behaviour is inexcusable in everyone. We certainly believe that, again, one of the biggest problems with our roads at the moment is a lack of policing, a lack of enforcement of everything from, you know, people in a car using a mobile phone to a cyclist jumping a red light. You know, all poor behaviour is being basically, you know, allowed now because we have such poor enforcement on our roads and we want to see this, the arms of our road policing teams, you know, strengthened in future because that's the only way that we're going to get a handle on this. Where do you stand on uh, the, the conversation about registration and insurance and all of that? Because a lot of people who you might consider to be anti-cyclist, and I, I don't count myself as anti-cyclist, I just want people to behave correctly and to and to observe the rules of the road you know what i mean but there's a lot of people who feel as though you know if somebody if a cyclist does run into them and doesn't stop you have no way of knowing who it is you have no way of, of, of snapping a picture of the bike and and then tracking them down whereas if they did have to have some kind of registration that might appease a lot of people i think yeah, look, again, and, and, you know, we do genuinely understand when people make calls for these things. I think what we just say again is let the evidence lead on these sorts of conversations. There is absolutely no evidence from anywhere across the whole globe that trying to do something like this works. And as horrendous as it sounds, you know, this is no different to any other level of, of the world where people walk around on a daily basis without any, you know, license plate showing on them. You know, when someone, you know pushes someone in a street equally again you know you can't necessarily trace them this is back again what we need is really good road policing we need good police on our streets and we think that that is one of the issues at the moment that has led to some of this you know really really angst-ridden behavior in our streets yeah but i mean it's very unlikely somebody's going to push you in the street and you're going to die but you could be run over by a cyclist and you could be very very seriously injured if not killed so it's a different, slightly uh, different situation. Yeah, and again, we have to go back to evidence. And what we would say is, you know, in the in the instances where that has happened, actually, 
the conviction rate, the arrest rate for someone on a bike is actually higher, if you look at it, than for the vast majority of incidents where someone in a car kills or seriously injures someone on the road. So just because a car has licence plate, that doesn't, if you look at the statistics and you let the evidence lead, that doesn't necessarily lead to capturing conviction. But a lot of people will be listening to you, Nick, and thinking, well, why, why wouldn't you want to do it? Because surely it would, at the very least, it would give people a sense that something was being done because there is a sense that cyclists are quite obdurate, quite obstinate. You know, they think they own the road. They think that they've got a right to do what they do, but you've got no right to criticise them for it. And I think it would go a long way towards getting good PR for the cycling community, which surely isn't a bad thing. Yeah, look, and again, it's, you know, I'm going to use that horrible term again around normal people. You know, there are lots of people who jump on a bike every so often throughout the year. We want kids. We want kids to ride to school. I think it's around the practicalities of these schemes. You know, if there was a practical way of implementing it and enforcing it, and we had best practice from somewhere in the rest of the world to say that this was a thing that worked and was achievable, okay, let's have a discussion around it. But that is not what the evidence is showing us. And we think there are better things and more important things that we should be focusing on that will help to enforce good behaviour and responsible behaviour on our roads. Yeah. No, I get all that, and I don't disagree with it, but I don't see any problem with, say, for example, having a little square um, number plate on the bottom of a saddle, which you could have on every bike that's purchased. And if a new bike is purchased, you've got it. And if you've got an older bike, then you can take it somewhere and have that put on. It's very straightforward, that, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, ironically, pretty much every single metal frame bicycle that comes out of a factory anywhere in the world has exactly that. It has a unique number print stamped on the bottom of it. And uh, in cases of bike theft, that is what the police use to be able to track that bicycle, you know. Oh, yeah, like the police police spend loads of time tracking stolen bikes. (laughs) Yeah, well, again, you know, but all I'm highlighting is the fact that actually there is a mechanism right now if you wanted to go down that route. The reality is, is I think there are much more effective and much more immediate and impactful ways of having a discussion around how we enforce good behaviour on our roads. Sure. Well, so how would you go about, and I know that maybe you're going to tell me it's an impossible task, but how would you go about preventing more of these rather unsavoury incidents, right, where many times, uh, uh, you know, cyclists are to blame, many times car drivers are to blame. I mean, how are we going to solve it? Because at the moment, it's daggers drawn time. It can be in some places. It can be daggers drawn. I think the critical and most important thing is, as you say, we need government, national and local to really front up and give some real responsibility for this. And to say that, look, you know, our society is changing, our roads, our towns are changing, and we need to invest in local places, actually in the roads right outside people's front doors. You know, the roads, the local roads that people use on a daily basis. We need to invest in them and we need to give people, whether they're walking, riding a bike, riding a horse, driving a car, safe places in order to do all of those things. But we've spent a lot of money in London. Billions have been spent on the cycle lanes. So, I mean, there's no shortage of investment for cyclists, but there's not much investment for motorists. Well, again, you know, the money that's been spent on cycle lanes and other improvements is still a tiny fraction of what is spent in the transport budget by Transport for London every year. Again, we need everyone in society to get behind that conversation and and let people know what they want to be done. But we do know that we're in a world where we need to do something about how people move around towns and cities and around this country, because what we've got at the moment, you know, is unpleasant. It's not nice to be in a car. It's not nice to walk. It's not nice to ride a bike. So, we've got to change and I think we just need to make sure that we're having an evidence-led debate around what is important and how we go about it. Absolutely right. Well, that's what we do here at Talk Radio. Nick, thanks very much indeed. Nick Chamberlain, Policy Manager at British Cycling. Let's have an evidence-led debate just as he has asked for. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.